Today's Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 23, and that's in page 822 in the Church Bibles. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. They say if you want to understand something, then you you got to learn to ask questions uh, like uh, where and when and why and who and what and how, th- those kinds of questions. And I think that's certainly true of Scripture uh, and the Gospel. Questions like that are good to help us understand. Uh, Matthew actually answers a couple of those uh, questions, a bit of the when and the where stuff in chapter 6 and verse 13 at the start of our text today, uh, but only so as to set up for Jesus who asks us, a bigger question here, a who question, uh, verse 13. Now, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and there's the when and where stuff, just in passing, he, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, that's a good question, actually. Uh, Son of Man was written, by my count, was written just on a 100 times in the scriptures of that day, Uh, our Old Testament today. Uh, Almost always it was used as a reference just to the humanness of people, Uh, you know, to flag our frailty or or, or our mortality, say, in comparison to God. Uh, So uh, about a hundred times like that, it was in Scripture, in places like Numbers, uh, Job and Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, uh, once or twice each, and especially, though, over 90 of those times uh, in Ezekiel, Uh, almost as if through Ezekiel to keep reminding him of his mere humanity as he receives the word of God. On two occasions in scripture, uh, in Psalms 8 and Psalm 80, uh, Son of Man there seems to speak maybe of something more than, than just our humanity. But then in one instance... In scripture, Uh, in Daniel chapter 7 it is, it it most definitely does speak of something more. 
And it might be worth me reading it out, that, that one different use of those words in Scripture in the Old Testament. As we think about Jesus' question here in Matthew 16, 13, it's in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, like one, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." That one occurrence of that phrase in the Old Testament speaks to more than our humanity. A glorious ruler who would be served, or worshipped that is, by all people on earth, world without end. In the New Testament, it's there too. By my count in the New Testament, Son of Man is used just over 80 times, and always specifically of Jesus. And 95% of the time by Jesus himself. He loved that title and he referred to himself that way all the time. And perhaps to, to sort of embrace the humanity of the heavenly king that he is and, and is destined to be. He self-claims the title right here in the text that we've just read. Uh, if we check the follow-up question that he asks, in verse 13 he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 15 he says to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? He's taking the title for himself right there. He and the Son of Man are, are synonymous as far as Jesus is concerned. But what does it mean to everyone else? To get back to his first question, what's the verdict on that first question he asked? Well, the disciples answer, and, he, and they said in verse 14, well, some people say John the Baptist, and, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or, or one of the prophets. We've already seen in chapter 14 that, that Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead, and seemingly other people thought that way too. Elijah, I think people might have gotten from Malachi chapter 4, the, the final note in, in our Old Testament scriptures where, where God promised that Elijah would come before the Lord God himself. Malachi 4.5, Behold, God says, I will, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Some people, it seems here, think that Jesus, that's the son of man, might be Elijah now come. Jesus has already told us, though, that John the Baptist was the promised Elijah. Do you remember that? That was back in Matthew chapter 11. And in other words, that he himself was the one coming after Elijah in, in Malachi's prophecy, the Lord God. Jeremiah is an interesting suggestion here. There was a Jewish cultural book written between the two testaments uh, in all those hundreds of years uh, where, where God promised Isaiah and Jeremiah would come before the end uh, in that book. It's called Two Esdras, that book, or Second Esdras, if you want to look it up. Uh, but, but I think actually perhaps people are thinking of Jesus in this particular way because of his message. He's got a doom and gloom kind of preaching, which was very much like Jeremiah's. He has, if you remember, he's been pronouncing woes and calling everyone everywhere to repentance. At any rate, 
Uh, there's a bunch of ideas, isn't there? There's a whole bunch of ideas there just in that little answer that people are forming about this son of man idea that Jesus keeps talking about. Uh, Jesus uh, goes on. He said to the disciples, but what about you? <laughs> Who do you say that I am? Which kind of sounds like all those different ideas of the people are wrong, doesn't it? Uh, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The people haven't actually yet understood who Jesus is. His self-title, Son of Man, is ambiguous and, and that's probably not helping. Uh, but Simon Peter has got it. it. Just in that verse, he has got it and we can be sure of that by the way that Jesus confirms what he says. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Yes, Jesus says. That's it, Peter. This is who the Son of Man is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of Man is the Son of the living God. My Father in heaven, he says, has revealed this to you, Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus' Father is, is not of flesh and blood, as this ordinary son of man from Nazareth appears to be. What's coming together here in this Q&A between Jesus and Peter, speaking for the disciples, is, is the absolute humanity of Jesus, the son of man, and yet the eternal divinity of Jesus. He's the son of the living God. This is why everyone's confused, I think. Because this simple, earthly Jesus, Mary's boy from Nazareth, has been working the wonders and the miracles of God everywhere. And what they haven't yet pieced together about all that is that, well, actually that only adds up if Jesus is both, son of man and son of God. And I'd say they haven't added it up because it's just impossible if you give it some thought, it's inconceivable to our human minds that there could be both those things in the one being. A son of man and a son of God all in one. And more impossible too that, 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 that such a one of God could or should or would be walking around Galilee like a man. But Peter has added this much up. Or rather, if we look more carefully, it has been revealed to him by God. And I think we can take Jesus' meaning there that Peter never would have added this up if it was just him on his own. It is just too much. Anyway, Jesus reciprocates all that uh, in that interaction there with his own statement back to Peter as to who, as to who Peter is. In verse 18, and I tell you, Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's an identity thing going on here which is pretty cool actually. Jesus renamed Simon, son of Jonah, with a new name, Peter. Uh, in, in the Gospel according to John, we learn that Jesus did that actually. When he first called Simon, uh, he said to Simon straight away, you will be called Kephas, 
which is the Aramaic word for rock. And here Jesus uses the Greek. You are Petros, rock. So there's a nice little wordplay here by Jesus. You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Which ought to stir up another question as we try to understand this text. What, uh, what does Jesus mean by that? A good what question, I think. There's three good options too, I think, in trying to answer it. That, that, that A, it's a straight line from rock to rock, as Jesus does his wordplay here. Jesus will build his church on Peter. Or maybe, though, B, it, it's the confession that Peter just made, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Maybe that truth about Jesus is the rock on which Jesus will build his church. Or, or maybe it's C, the act of confessing in and of itself. What Peter just did will be the way that Jesus builds his church. Those options have been debated through the centuries ever since, and and yet maybe the answer is actually D, all of the above. Uh, there's no question, uh, for example, that Peter plays a leading role in the 12 disciples, in everything that follows. And So, for example, if you keep reading through into the Gospel of Acts as Jesus builds his church uh, at the beginning, then sure enough, it is Peter who leads. Uh, and yet what does Peter do as a leader, as that narrative unfolds? He, he stands up and preaches that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet, isn't it that truth that is what's needed to build the church? Uh, all three things are involved, actually, and, and we can't actually separate them out so neatly as distinct options as, as Jesus builds his church. There's another what question there for us, I think, in verse 18 that, that often uh, locks us up. <laughs> What does Jesus mean by the gates of hell not prevailing against his church? Uh, the Greek word there, uh, word there is Hades, by the way, and you might have a footnote like that uh, in your Bible. Uh, Hades, the place of the dead, or, or just you know the grave in its general use. Uh, but sometimes it's used more specifically uh, of hell, as in our ESV that we've read from today. So does Jesus mean that death won't overcome his church or, or that hell won't overcome his church? And, and either way, is it, is it them that's on the offensive against his church or is the church supposed to be on the attack against them? Again, no, I don't know that we need to be getting tied up in knots. Are any of those things not true as how Jesus builds his church and, and what it looks like? We might as well keep going, though, because I think in the next verse is probably the biggest of the what questions that we often get tangled on, waiting for us there in verse 19. I will give you the keys, says Jesus. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does Jesus mean there? I think we should ask. Uh, you might like to know, and, and some of your translations you're looking at today might catch this too, that the original language underneath here has got a kind of a potential nuance uh, to the, the two earthly uh, sides of the equation here and, and a completed nuance to the heavenly parts uh, in each of those statements that Jesus just said, such that we could read this uh, quite faithfully actually, I think, that uh, 
uh, whatever, you, whatever you might bind on earth uh, or loose on earth will already have been bound or loosed in heaven. You could read it that way. Which would give it quite a logical sense that it, that it will be in heaven where things are determined, but that those things nevertheless will be played out in Jesus' church. What unfolds in Jesus' church, thinking about it the other way, will we'll just reflect what is actually already unfolding in heaven. It's not, I should think, as it might first seem in the English, and particularly this ESV here, that, that Peter or the church will determine who's going to heaven. Um, it's often been understood that way. I don't think that's what it means. Uh, in fact, when you slow down and, and, and just read it again and, and read it a few times over again, even just in the English, in the CSV, it, it less and less actually seems like that kind of idea and more and more, more, more just seems like Jesus is really just saying that, that his church will be aligned with the will of heaven. Uh, you know, as, as if it's, more, it's just a more specific way of saying, for example, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I suspect there's no need for complex knots here either. I mean, if you think about the reality as Jesus' church unrolls, well, well, if this thing or that thing wasn't of God's will, then really? I mean, no Peter and, and no church are going to be able to bind it or loose it anyway if you give it some... So Jesus, therefore, wouldn't be talking about that thing right here. Anyway, Jesus repeated those words, by the way, to, to all his disciples a bit later, just in, over the page in chapter 18. We'll get there in due course, Lord willing. Uh, Truly I say to you, uh, all of his disciples, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Anyway, while we tend to get uh, tangled up in, in those what questions that that short paragraph throws up, the grave danger is that we might actually miss how deep the who question Jesus asked actually runs through this text, which I think is what it's actually all about. So just to make sure we don't gloss over this point, uh, notice on the first what questions there, notice that Jesus is building his church. Who exactly is this son of man? Isn't it God who promised to call and save a people together for himself? Is Jesus going to build some rival movement to, to contend with what God is doing? What person would dare defy the living God by saying such a thing as this? But of course, if Jesus is the son of the living God, then there's no clash here at all. He is here to fulfill what God had always said. So too, uh, notice uh, that Jesus says that, that he can give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's blasphemy, we would think, unless, of course, he is the son of the living God. Jesus makes epic statements all the time about who he is. And we can't afford to get so lost inside our own questions that pop up that, that we miss 
the forest for the trees in what he's saying. And so to round out this first passage today, I think it, I think it comes back to, to the question in focus in verse 20, which centres on Jesus and, and who Jesus is. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The time for their public confession of who Jesus is was not yet. There's more coming that he has to prepare them for first. But I think we ought to extend out what he says here and and kind of ask it of ourselves here as a church. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he some prophet to your mind, like Jeremiah, uh, John the Baptist, one who works miracles maybe like Elijah or Has God the Father revealed the otherwise inconceivable truth about him to you? Anyway, as I say, there's more coming for these disciples. Matthew skips through another bit of when and where stuff in verse 21, uh, this time to set up the next big question that now eventually, I mean, it just has to come up after we think about the who. When the who sinks in, this, this one, the why has to sort of, Strike up the why of Jesus coming like this as the Son of Man. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why did the Son of the living God come down here to be a Son of Man? To suffer and die, says Jesus. We touched on this a bit last week too when Jesus spoke uh, to the others uh, of this uh, sign of Jonah. He did it in chapter 12 and he did it again in our text last week in chapter 15. Uh, The sign of Jonah that would be given whereby he would be buried in the heart of the earth, in the grave, that is, for for three days. Uh, Not only... Uh, is this why Jesus came? But, but he knew the detail of what that would entail. Uh, and this would hardly be why anyone would think that the Christ, the Son of the living God, would, would have arrived. It's even too much for Peter here. Peter, to whom God had revealed the answer to the first big question Jesus asked of, of the who of this uh, Jesus, Son of Man. <laughs> This why factor now is just too much for Peter. He implodes. In fact, it's the who question of Jesus from the first part of the text that makes it so hard for Peter now here. The why factor in all of this from verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Get rid of the pronouns maybe. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. The who has blown Peter's mind now in terms of the why. Jesus has added the the inconceivable onto more inconceivable here, that, that he is the son of God in human form, but that he came like that to suffer and die. How could that possibly, possibly be? 
Again, Jesus reciprocates on that with, with the rebuke of his own back towards Peter. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a turnaround. What a turnaround between those two paragraphs. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. The who question of the Son of Man. No, my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But on the second question now of why the Son of Man, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me as I try to build my church. Clearly the Father has not revealed to these men yet the why of the Son of Man. Jesus says it to them here, but they cannot understand. So we should think about what Jesus says here. We've got more of this gospel we know, of course. We should think about what he asks here. It's, it, it is one of the things of God, he says there, it's one of the things of God that the Christ, the Son of the living God, should condescend from heaven to become a son of man so as to suffer and die. That is just one of the things of God. And it is one of the things of Satan and carnal men to reject that truth. So yes, I think we should ask, why do you think Jesus came? Was it so that he could go to Jerusalem and suffer and die? Or are you thinking that he, he had some other cause in mind? The who and the why of Jesus makes for a very difficult gospel and and it's a very humbling gospel when we come up against these two truths that actually what this says is that, is that we are sinful. That's bad enough. But, but sinful such that this is the intervention that was required from God, what, what he chose to do. But this is what the gospel proclaims. The Son of the living God did not become as a son of man to hand out gold stars. He took on a body so that he could die for our sin. Even though it had been inscripturated like so, those twin truths, the who and the why of Jesus coming like this, those twin truths were still too hard for people to receive and they are still too hard today for people to receive because mere human, carnal kind of minds, are, those, sorry, those two things are just impossible to our human thinking. It's just it's impossible on top of impossible here and, and even on top of impossible again at this point because make sure to see the last part of what Jesus says here, which I think Peter might have missed in all this, that on the third day, Jesus would be raised. Verse 
somewhere in this impossible chain, the human mind breaks down, if not all along the way. But this is the gospel. It was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus spoke it all the way to the grave and and he appeared after he was raised to prove it and and to explain it and, and, and unpack what it means for you and I that we can be forgiven in no other way. Because this here was the way of God on the question of our sin. The who and why gospel is humbling. It's also so inconceivable that I think we can safely extrapolate from Jesus here that we need God the Father to reveal such things to us. By itself, our human mind might not be able to grasp one or the other or either of those things about Jesus, that he is the son of the living God and that he came here to die for our sin. The disciples don't yet understand this in Matthew 16, but they will receive it later. Again, as we put the two together, I think we should ask again, Ask of one another, well, well, whereabouts are you? Where are you with that who and and why gospel of Jesus Christ? Who do you say that he is? And why do you say that he came? I thought I might close, actually, with a kind of of mash-up, like some of the things Peter went on to say about Jesus when all of this was revealed to him. In the apostolic authority that Jesus set upon Peter for for doing that work in places like this right here, uh, stitch a few things together of what Peter said so we can catch a sense of how Jesus used Peter and co. to to build his church. Uh, I've grabbed a few samples from what he said. It's just a few bits and pieces I've kind of plucked out from Peter's preaching In the first few Christian sermons in the book of Acts, uh, bits and pieces here and there, these snippets are from Acts 2 and 3 and 4 if you want to read up uh, the whole of Peter's sermons there later. But just catch for now this little mashup of of where Peter came to on this who and why gospel that we've seen him wrestling with today in Matthew 16. Chapter 2, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David, he goes on, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." In chapter 3, he said things like this, But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. 
But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And in chapter 4, he said, This Jesus is the stone. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Where are you on all that truth? Has the Father revealed that gospel to your heart? If not, then then it's written all through these scriptures and all through Matthew so far, and there's more still to come. So do pray and go back and read. If the Father has revealed that gospel to your heart, then be excited because there's plenty more coming too for you in this gospel. Uh, But from today's scripture, take away this great encouragement, I'd say. If the Father in heaven has revealed the who and the why of Jesus to you, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scripture and uh, for these two impossible truths that we see written through here that are most certainly true. That Jesus is now both human and divine and, and that he came to die for our sins. Please reveal those two things to us if we haven't yet received them, Father. Uh, Write them into our hearts and our minds. And and if we have received them already, then impress those two truths all the deeper on us, we pray. This is just so deep to take in. And yet we pray that you continue to write these truths on us so that your Son builds his church in us and through us this day and to the day of forever. And it's in his glorious name that we ask these things and that we thank you. Amen. Amen.